It's religion today, it's ideology today, and our secularist friends also have a faith. Some kind of Disneyland fantasy. I know how this is going to get heard in the secular world. Where the pseudo-Christian masks are off. That's nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. Apologetics isn't just about giving answers to other people's questions. It's also about learning to question other people's answers or even question the question itself in a Christian worldview. Well, welcome to Quantum number 93. Quantum is a podcast that looks at news and views and culture from a Christian perspective. In the time of this uh, COVID-19 crisis and pandemic that's ongoing, one of the interesting things has been that we are able in our closed down cities, or at least partially closed cities, to hear sounds and noises that we wouldn't often hear. Here's one from Sydney. Yeah, that's the kookaburra. Um, Lovely sound, you may think. Not so lovely at five in the morning. Anyway, uh, our... It is important that we are governed, and in times of crisis, there's a danger or a tendency towards authoritarianism. And therefore, it's great that parliaments continue to meet, as Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House of Commons, explains. What we do in this House is not something that it is nice to do, a frippery, a bauble on the British Constitution. It is the British Constitution. It is at the essence of how our governmental and constitutional system works. The ability to hold the government to account, the ability to seek redress of grievance, the ability to take up those matters brought to us by our constituents so that they may be put right is best done when this House sits. In 1349, when the Black Death affected this country, Parliament couldn't sit and didn't. The session was cancelled. Thanks to modern technology, even I have moved on from 1349, (laughs) and I'm glad to say, and I'm glad to say that we can sit to carry out these fundamental constitutional functions. I think you put that rather well, and I think it is good, and in fact, I thought it was important that Keir Starmer was able to question Boris Johnson and did so actually remarkably effectively. But I think there are questions to be answered in the United Kingdom, in Australia, in in countries throughout the world, in China and Malaysia and so on. Well, in China, would you get to ask them? I don't know. But for the UK, what about this? Things I don't understand. Why are people able to travel into the UK from all over the world but not able to travel in the UK. In other words, I could go from Australia to the UK, but I couldn't go from Dundee to my parents' home in the Scottish Highlands without being in breach of the law. There's something deeply disturbing about that. The second is what we call the care home scandal. Now, this is going to come out more and more. But there was a report by Reuters I read which was profoundly depressing And it certainly rang true. And it goes like this. Well, basically, it says that the government took lots of ill people out of hospitals without testing them, put them into care homes, elderly people, because they wanted to clear beds for the COVID crisis. Now, some of those people could have been infected and infected elderly people. I think is it almost two thirds of people in Scotland who died have been it's been in care homes. In the United Kingdom, it's at least one third. 
And you know partly what was going on here? It's this ridiculous slogan about save the NHS. The NHS, the National Health Service, is there to save people. It's not there to be saved. And now we've had a situation where people are not going to doctors or to hospitals because they don't want to put a burden on the NHS. And where the government removed a lot of people out of hospital care into care homes, thereby spreading the disease to the most vulnerable because they just wanted to save the NHS. Now, protecting people within the NHS, absolutely. My daughter's there. I want her to be protected. And in, in enabling the NHS to be able to function in order to save people, yes. But somehow we've turned the NHS into some kind of golden calf that... Uh, politicians, no politician in Britain is going to criticise the NHS or have reform. But what about our elderly? And that's, that, that's a big, big question. And then another question is this. Why has the whole of government been based upon one non-peer-reviewed report? I'm referring to this. The study led by Imperial College painted a worst-case picture of hundreds of thousands of deaths and a health service overwhelmed with severely sick patients. It used new data gathered from Italy, the worst infected country in Europe, and compared the potential impact of COVID-19 with the devastating 1918 flu outbreak. It concluded that the outbreak could have caused more than half a million deaths in Britain, but the scientists say that with the containment measures, including extreme social distancing, the epidemic's curve and peak could be flattened. Now, this came to light again because the scientist who was behind this report, who's not an epidemiologist, by the way, Professor Neil Ferguson, um, is the scientist upon whose report this strict lockdown was based, and he's found to be a complete hypocrite. He has resigned because his mistress, who is a married woman with two children, travelled across London twice to visit him after he had had COVID-19. Professor Ferguson has appeared many times in the media supporting the lockdown and praising very intensive social distancing measures. Well, there's lots of things to say about this particular thing apart from his hypocrisy. First of all, it's intriguing to me that almost no one in the media has mentioned his sin of having an affair with a married woman, breaking marriage vows. Why is... Why is that not mentionable? And then he himself speaks of his having made an error of judgment, but only by having the woman over to his house, not by having the affair in the first place. I think Professor Ferguson is guilty of a lot of errors of judgment. And it amazes me that the government have based their policy on his advice. Just let me list some of the things. In 2001, he worked on research that led to the mass culling of hundreds of thousands of farm animals during the foot and mouth disease epidemic. That was highly suspect. In 2002, he predicted that between 50 and 50,000, a big number, could die from exposure to BSE. He also predicted the number would rise to 150,000 if there was a sheep, sheep epidemic. This was a BSE is mad cow disease. Um, in the UK, there have been fewer than 200 deaths from the human form of BSE. In 2005, he claimed that up to 200 million people could be killed from bird flu. He said that it was like the Spanish flu, the 1918 Spanish flu. 
Result, only seven, several hundred people died worldwide. In 2009, he and his team, Imperial College, predicted the swine flu had a case fatality rate of between 0.3% and 1.5, with the most likely estimate being about 0.4. So they reckoned that the disease would lead to 65,000 UK deaths. What happened? Swine flu killed just 457 people in the UK. In March 2020, a paper produced by Prof. Ferguson's team predicted that the coronavirus pandemic could lead to a quarter of a million deaths in the UK. And that's the paper on which the whole government policy has been established. Anyway, let's move on to something else. And let's talk about celebrities during the shutdown. Now, I this is incredible. Celebrities, so many celebrities telling us um, what we should be doing and apparently we're, we're, we're expected to follow them. I think there's been a real pushback against celebrity uh, in uh, this pandemic. Ricky Gervais, I think here, many things I disagree with him, but not least on God, but um, he gets this spot on. Listen to this. I think it was a bit zeitgeisty because people have suddenly been you know, vocal about how they're sick of being lectured by people. They're sick of uh, multi-millionaires telling them to clean out their coffee jar and put it in the right bin to save the planet. And they know that celebrity is just come here in a lim- limousine and is going to get a private jet to his island. So people were just sick of it, just bit sick of being lectured. Um, and uh, and I, I think that's what resonated uh, most with it. But, you know, for me, it was the, the same old sort of teasing the, the rich and famous, and I've got nothing against them. But... Basically, they're going, oh, my God, my film's not coming out. I'm not on telly tonight. What can I do? I need to be, I need to be in the public eye. And, and, and I'm not saying all of them. I'm not even saying any of them. But sometimes you can just see in their eye that they're going, I could cry at the beauty of my personality. I could, I'm so beautiful. I could well up at what a wonderful thing I'm doing. It's like, and everyone sees that. It's like, we, we get it. We get it. So I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, it doesn't affect me, apart from the gigs being postponed, which is annoying, but we can do it when everyone's better and everyone's feeling good and it all goes back to normal and we, we, we all can't wait for that. Um, but listen, Yeah, we are. We're fed up, I've been told, by people to do something when they themselves do the opposite. And we're fed up being told by celebrities, we're all in this together. I think it was Babylon B had this wonderful photograph, mock photo, of celebrities spelling out in their luxury yachts on the sea, we're in this together. <laughs> well, no, we're not. Paul Joseph Watson puts it rather well. There's people who have been cooped up in high-rise rabbit hutches for nearly two months who have no income and no job to come back to. No, we're not in this together. Ellen DeGeneres describing her $27 million Balinese-inspired, gym-equipped, infinity pool, eight-acre mansion compound as a jail. This is like being in jail. And no, I'm not watching your insipid stay-at-home TV special. Hey guys, I'm TV presenter and part-time comedian Johnny Smugface. You probably know... One of the things that this crisis has shown is the difference between rich and poor. As I've said before, I feel, I don't live in a mansion, I live in an apartment, but I feel particularly privileged. My apartment has a nice view. I can go out and walk in gorgeous views. I can cycle. I'm not living 
in a slum. I'm not living in uh, a housing estate cooped up with three kids. No, we're not all in this together. And I think that's particularly true of South Africa uh, and Africa. Now, one of the things that's interesting, I read a report, I hope this is true, that COVID-19 is not taking hold in Africa as much as people had expected, nor indeed in India, which is wonderful. However, what has happened is that the governments within those countries have followed the same policies as the Western countries and shut down. And it looks as though there, there could be mass starvation because of that. Uh, I, that to me is, again, an extraordinary thing. Um, there's a report in the metro of thousands joining a four-kilometer queue in uh, a locked South African city. Again, and I don't apologize for repeating this again and again and again. What about the poor? What about the poor? Economies need to be kept going. The middle class and the wealthy can generally survive, have some kind of reserves, have nice homes. And often are the ones that are going to be in, in well-paid government jobs as well. But what about the poor? Okay, let's change and um, let's come on to another scandal. Will we call it a scandal? Yes, it is a, it is a kind of scandal. Uh, Michael Gove or his wife had posted a photo of their library and amongst other books and there was a book by David Irvin. Now, David Irvin is a Holocaust denier and uh, Owen Jones had a go at him and others had a go at him. And this, listen, listen to this quote from... Uh, a scholar, inverted commas. I sort of object to the notion that uh, Michael Gove and Sarah Vine have a book by a Holocaust denier on their bookshelf because they wanted to read someone who they disagreed with. Because I actually think you can do that, but that, but but it says something about you if you keep that book in your shelves. I mean, I've read Mein Kampf, but I don't want that on my bookshelves because I think it says something about me. Wow. Wow. What is wrong with that? Well, you come and look at my bookshelf. Now, I'll admit this. If I come to your house, I'm going to look at your bookshelf. If I see a lot of Banner of Truth books there, you're a Christian, I'm going, okay, I think that person's probably pretty sound. I am going to make certain judgments. If I see Fifty Shades of Grey and other pornographic novels, I'm going to think, okay, I have some concerns here. So, yeah, I guess you can judge someone by their books, but you can't on another level. I mean, I have Mein Kampf. I have Chairman Mao. I have Lenin. I have Marx. I have um, Richard Dawkins. Imagine that. I'm a Christian minister. I have Richard Dawkins. This idea that the woman put forward, it says so much about you and you have to have the right books. It's, it's indicative of a mindset that's quite disturbing. And that disturbing mindset is seen in what's going on in Scotland. Now, I wrote an article this week which has got a lot of traction uh, about the Scottish Justice Secretary, Hamza Youssef, and the new Scottish Blasphemy Bill. Now, what is this? Well, Hamza Youssef has decided, now the, the SNP, the Scottish Government, have decided that COVID-19 is so serious 
that they cannot publish their report on the state of Scottish education until after the next election. Why? Well, of course, because it's going to be pretty negative. Scottish education's in a mess. But they have decided they can go ahead with abolishing the Blasphemy Bill, the Blasphemy Act. Now, the Blasphemy Act was last used in 178 years ago when an Edinburgh bookseller called Thomas Patterson was prosecuted for having a sign in his bookshop saying, the Bible and other obscene books not sold here. So it hasn't been used for 178 years. Getting rid of it, it's not a big deal. But they're replacing it with something. They don't call it a blasphemy act, but it is a blasphemy act. It's a hate crimes. And Hamza Youssef has reacted extraordinarily to being criticized about this because it's introducing who says what hate speech is well the person who perceives it if you're in a protected category so some of the messages i've received let's say from some within the scottish secular society one person even saying i hate you now how does that not count as hate speech well it wouldn't under this law i don't think but if i questioned islam that would count as hate speech. So here's a question for Hamza Yousaf, one I've posed to him and one which he refuses to answer. If this is not a reintroduction of a renewed blasphemy bill, one this time that has teeth and will be acted upon, then Mr. Yousaf needs to answer this question. If a bookseller in Edinburgh today was to put a sign outside his window saying, the Quran and other obscene books not sold here, would he be prosecuted under this law? Could he be prosecuted under this law? You see, the way that the British state has been going, including Scotland, it means that if you perceive something to be hateful or offensive, then it is illegal. Listen to this, a police officer warning a street preacher. No, no, if it's, if it's something offensive, if someone finds something offensive, regardless of what you think, no. it's, a, it's a crime. It can be a crime there. It's an offence if someone finds something offensive, if it's, if it's racial, okay, if it's against someone's sexuality. Now, the street preacher may not be wise. The street preacher may, may say things that are offensive. The street preacher may even be offensive. But does it not chill you to the bone that a policeman can say to you, if someone finds this offensive, it is illegal? Is anyone going to be able left to speak? Well, of course they are because this is highly discriminatory and highly selective. This is no longer all equal under the law. All right, enough of that. I do want to finish with a, uh, a just a thought on the power of music because, as I say, I've been recording for the Eternity podcast. It's uh, We do um, for the Third Space podcast on, on the Eternity Network here in Australia. Uh, we're doing this series called uh, life in wartime and uh, please can I encourage you to subscribe to it it would greatly help us uh, we're trying to produce good quality material and we need to um, be able to show people that this is wanted anyway I've just recorded one on the power of music so I just want to reflect some things here for example is a great piece of music
It's Dire Straits, the Sultans of Swing, Mark Knopfler. Um, just an incredible piece of music. And if you watch the video, and I'll put a link to it on my blog, then you'll just see the sheer joy in the young men as they are playing. And the people, I think, in the crowd witnessing possibly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, um, live displays of guitar work that you'll you'll ever see. To me, it's just joyous. I, I have listened to that many, many times. But it's not all joy, is it? Music's not all about happiness. Here's, here's a, 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 a Gaelic song sent to me by uh, one of our listeners. Now, I'm not going to risk uh, my Gaelic friends upsetting them by trying to pronounce it. But the, the Gaelic title in English means, Oh Sister, Beloved Sister. And it's a beautiful, sad song of a young girl kidnapped by fairies calling for her sister to rescue her. And it's a, a song of isolation. It's a song of grief. And Gaelic is just, there are some languages. Gaelic is one of them. I, I think Italian is another. That, um, but I think the Celtic language particularly, they, they are able to express emotion in such a wonderful way. I think at the, this time of the pandemic, we're, we're able to have a place for lament. And then let me just say something about the power of reflective, of collective, not reflective, but collective singing. This is a crowd, tens of thousands of them, waiting for Queen to come on. Listen to them singing. There's something quite remarkable about them knowing the words. Maybe they were projected on a screen, um, knowing what is a quite a complex and difficult tune, and being able to to sing it all. Again, in the church, we have the power of collective singing. If we ever get back. I think in the church we are we we have so much gifts of music so if you want something that's joyful if you want something that's reflective if you want the power of collective singing then you are not going to beat this I think this is absolutely wonderful this is uh, a number of churches and Christian organizations 
in the United Kingdom who've got together and ha have made this video, this song of the Lord bless you and keep you. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful song. I think it illustrates the unity of the church. I think it il illustrates our dependence upon God. And it's certainly my prayer for you. Uh, please do keep on sending in your stuff. Uh, let me have any comments that you wish. And I do pray this prayer for you, that the Lord would bless you and keep you wherever you are in the world. Uh, if you want to support the Quantum, then go to the Podbean fundraiser and please do so there. Thanks to all of you who do. And God willing, we shall see you next week. Mana rain down from heaven. This isn't second guessing. We know that we are protected. May the peace that surpasses all understanding be our message. Grace and favors in your nature, in your essence. May favor be upon you and a thousand generations. And your family and your children and the children and the children. May His favor be upon you. And a thousand generations And your family And your children And their children And their children Please favor Be a party And a thousand generations And your family And your children And their children And their children May his favor Be a party